Hi, and welcome to the Hospice News Elevate podcast. My name is Jim Parker, and I'm editor of Hospice News. And in this episode, I'm speaking with anthropologist, theater maker, and consultant, Dr. Sarah Schneider. She is the founder of The Human Journey, which uses a game process to help families of terminally ill patients work through their feelings of grief and loss. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Jim. Uh, so I wondered if you could start by just kind of telling us about your own professional background, which is, is kind of unique in terms of people who come to the, the hospice space and, yeah. uh, and introduce us to the human journey. Oh, thanks. I'd, I'd be delighted. You know, I've had a lifelong interest in death and dying, and I do not know where that came from. But I had the chance as a as a kid to meet Elizabeth Kubler-Ross mm-hmm. and was very much you know, just taken with her work. I started reading it as a, as a teenager and was quite taken with it. And it, that kind of stayed with me even as I went on to do a doctorate in a field called performance studies, which blends the arts and anthropology. The first theater piece in, the, in those days when I was directing a theater company then as well was based on what I then understood to be five linear stages of uh, Ross's project or, or uh, model because it struck, it struck me as being a very good structuring principle. So I started bringing theater and um, the death and dying space together kind of early on. Over time, my career has dealt both, you know, all, all with fieldwork and anthropology, where I've largely focused on the body and on the behavior of groups, of course, as cultural anthropology tends to. And also, as you know, as per the performance studies thing, with theater, writing, and direction, which is really about, in part, about moving bodies around a stage, mm-hmm. but also about orchestrating the relationships among those selves and characters in a way that creates a moving or striking or believable emotional arc experience for an audience. And that has been really influential for the human journey, too. But the focus on groups just continued wherever I went. I couldn't leave it, um, leave it behind. So there was, you know, also organizational learning. There was, you know, teaching bodies and groups through teaching yoga. And as I became more involved in a, in a yoga practice, I also felt that yoga philosophy, the yoga philosophy that I was getting into somehow, um, asked of me that I also get involved in the work with death and dying. And so I became a hospice volunteer. And so those are all the little threads that somehow came together to form the human journey. To introduce the human journey, it's it's an experience that can take place with a small group, anywhere from two up to about six in a family system or in a group of close friends who are helping to care for and be a system of love around a person who might be dying. That experience can take anywhere from 45 minutes if you do the first part to about three hours if you do all of that in a single sitting or you can come back. But there's still benefit if you do it just for 45 minutes. Uh, people really, really take something away. And it's across, you know, you mentioned that it's it's a game-based experience. It, it looks like a board game. When people uh, unpack it, you're, they're, they're looking at a game box that has cards, a deck, and implements, dice. So on a spatial level, you're looking at a board game. But from an experiential level for the participants, it's more like being in a novel or a play or a screenplay. You're actually going through that emotional arc that I mentioned earlier. That is really interesting. 
So you mentioned that you've always kind of had this this interest in in death and dying and, and discovered uh, you know the work of of uh, Kubler Ross. Uh, is there anything more you can add about how you came to the bereavement and end of life care space? You know, I, I think I found in everyday life it wasn't really professionally. I found in everyday life that um, I was very comfortable in that space. I wasn't afraid of it. I had language to use in it. I was able to write eulogies you know, for people. Um, and, and also I should mention that the, the fact of having had hospice volunteering experience was also really, really influential when my mother came to die. And so I was, I felt like I was her fellow traveler in the experience of her last several months. And the human journey absolutely, you know, evolves from that experience. Um, and as imprinted, you know, on future, you know, experiences of working with people who are bereaved or anticipating a loss. Thank you. And, uh, I am sorry to hear about, uh, about your loss. Um, so you mentioned, uh, the, the concept of, you know, anticipatory grief and bereavement. Uh, how would you define that? I, I think most people in the hospice space have a pretty good understanding of, of grief, but, but just in case, you know, how would you sure. uh, explain that concept? Sure. You know, for me, it's, it's not a particularly a technical definition, mm-hmm. but the, the way that I describe it to the people I work with, it's, and I think it is going to make more sense to people now that we've been through a pandemic together so far, that there's a recognition that losses come in all forms, mm-hmm. that they're not really tied to the material necessarily. You know, people now have lost all kinds of things in addition to the losses of their loved ones, their family members, societally and globally. And there's a recognition that that the loss can be ephemeral, it can be intangible. Um, And in the case of a person who's in hospice care, there's a recognition that the loss is already here, whether or not the person has literally died or not. And so it's, very often that anticipatory grief is unspoken, it's unacknowledged, and it um, is unembraced uh, societally. And uh, can you kind of describe the, the game process that the human journey uses? Gladly. gladly. So uh, there's a little bit of a setup. The, the family does not do the human journey on their own. I train people I call conductors of the mm-hmm. human journey, and those folks are, they perform a facilitative role, they wear a number of different hats in the course of doing that, many of them very subtle. And so from the family perspective, the family may not recognize all that they're doing behind the scenes in order to make the experience glide forward as, you know, as smoothly as a, as a train might, you know, hopefully glide forward. But what they initially do after setting up a number of ground rules to make the experience safe for everyone is they lay out a set of cards that are called the conditions cards. And the conditions cards are then if the family is playing in person um, and you don't have somebody remotely engaging via Zoom or another, you know, another platform, they will actually paw through the cards a little bit uh, in order to see and name and take for themselves the conditions that, in essence, they were born into in life. And the conductor emphasizes that these were not conditions that they had any responsibility for, that these were just what they were dropped into. You know, whatever their spiritual standpoint, this this is what they were handed. And I mentioned earlier that they name for themselves. Actually, that that might be a little bit of a literally a misnomer because they don't speak these conditions out loud. They simply take them for their hand 
and name them for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, claim them, I should say. Yeah, from that, we um, pull those cards to the side, and there's another deck of small cards that are called the gifts cards, which, like the conditions cards, are those things that the person has been endowed with very early in life. They were not worked for. They were not deserved. They were not not deserved. They were simply given. And like the, you know, they form in some way kind of a complement or a counterpart to the conditions cards. Um, and so people choose three to five of each of these, and together they make the hand that you're dealt in life, in essence, literally. And so they have kind of a physical metaphor that they're that they're literally looking that they're looking at. Um, and so that's what I call the rehearsal phase of the human journey. And when I said that you can do do it in 45 minutes, that's the piece that you can do in 45 minutes, and it can be very powerful for people simply to own the reality of of their past. Mm-hmm without having to argue about them with anyone else or even just say them to anyone else. Um, so I can start right there. Excellent. And uh, so when we when first um, had kind of a pre- preliminary call between the two of us, you mentioned that the uh, the game process follows the concept of, of the hero's journey, which many of us are familiar with. It's, of course, existed in literature and folklore for thousands of years. Uh, but can you briefly kind of flesh out what that idea is and how you apply it here in the human journey? What I find in doing the trainings with folks is that people don't know they know the hero's journey um, unless they've been English majors or screenwriters or you know, this, this kind of thing. Um, for, for many of us who come out of that world, it's, it's very old hat. For, for many others, they're very excited to learn that actually they've been living through the human, the, excuse me, the hero's journey in many different forms through the many films they've watched, through the many novels they've read. Uh, it's actually a, a method of, sh- of shaping an emotional arc, the kind of thing I mentioned earlier, that gives people a sense of something building, a sense of something coming to um, kind of the, the top of the mountain, and then descending into something that feels like a resolution. You know, I, I typically use the example of, of The Wizard of Oz, which, with which many, many people are familiar, mm-hmm. as a way of helping people understand that you have, in this case, a heroine who uh, start, is being given one of the early phases of the, of the hero's journey, which is a call to adventure. You have a, an innocent girl who has a chance to see what's beyond the world she knows in black and white Kansas. Mm-hmm. And so she carries on. She meets friends and mentors along the way. She engages in increasingly dangerous adventures. Um, she hits bottom in a sense. And then when she has learned enough, when she becomes wise enough, she can return to Kansas now in color and provide the gifts back to her family and community that she gained on the way. So yes, she can. Go, she could have gone back home any time, but when she does get to go back home, she comes back enriched. And so if, if your listeners are kind of thinking about that, they'll see that, of course, in Star Wars, they'll see that in any number of, you know, very famous film designs where you have that single hero who has to battle uh, a situation but come home wiser. So the, the human journey is not a, a strict translation of, of the hero's journey. It takes part of some of the feminist rethinkings of the hero's journey, but it also makes, and I think, you know, this is the what I call kind of the secret sauce of the human journey. It makes of the current group the hero. And so through the um, interplay of what individuals are learning along their path through the experience and how the group is being orchestrated to interact, 
very consciously. It's kind of like a double helix of interact of meaning making and belonging happening. Excellent. That's a, a great uh, example. The the Wizard of Oz kind of uh, funny story. The the house where L. Frank Baum lived when he wrote the novel is right around the corner from where I live here in Chicago, and it does actually have a oh. yellow brick walkway towards the uh, the entrance right in front of it. Oh my God, we're going to have to talk address when um, <laughs> when we get off the podcast. I love that. So, uh, as you mentioned, the game requires a, a facilitator. And can you talk a little bit about who that person should be? Is this something anyone can do or, or what kind of training would they need? You know, it, it's interesting. It, one of the things that I've had a real passion for, in addition to, you know, death and dying, is the idea that, that work should be holistic and meaningful and that the degree to which an experience can provide benefit in 360 degrees. I want it to, and I want to design experiences that do that. So the human journey is designed to benefit the patient and the family, albeit in different ways, without making the patient in the hot seat. Mm -hmm. And by the same token, the larger circle of the that includes the conductor is partly designed to make hospice work more humanizing to the degree possible. Um, and by that, I mean anyone who has the requisite dispositions could actually be in the conductor's role. So that means a nurse could do it, you know, should she have the time, a social worker, a chaplain, an administrator, a volunteer, um, you know, a doctor, again, should she have the time. So the, the required dispositions are really two things. One is that the person have the kind of warmth and ability to to hold space that very often is typical of people who are attracted to hospice work. It's just, it's not that unusual, thank goodness. And, it, you know, it's why people love hospice. It, that, space, that kind of embracing, that kind of hospitality is, is just characteristic of a lot of hospice workers. But the second characteristic is is more a subset of those people. And that second characteristic is that they are um, firm in holding down ground rules and in redirecting people when they steer to the side. Because families at a point, you know, when they're under duress and when they're in a, a crisis as they're going to be, they're going to push back against, uh, against the conductor. And so the person has to be ready for that in order to maintain the safety of the experience for everyone. Because the conductor's role in large part is to be the steward of the group's energy and not to let any one person um, Rule, essentially rule that. Interesting. Yeah, thank you. That that is uh, that's just fascinating. And uh, why did you feel that the style of a of a game would be the right approach for this kind of work? You know, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about how the whole thing got started and how it yeah how it became a game. Some years ago, I had three losses that all came in close succession with each other. And of course, I was grieving those losses, but I was also trying to see, well, what can I make of these creatively? There's a, you know, a bit of a kind of a playwriting thing or a, or a writing motive that was coming out of it just because whether I didn't want to feel the feelings fully or what, I, I wanted to make something out of it. And so I started going back to what I knew about narrative theory and to playing around with the different genres in which people tell stories of hard times, whatever those hard times are. And we have some that are truly characteristic of 
of various therapeutic modes of how people tell their stories. We have ways that we tell stories to friends uh, about what happened, you know, very often blaming the other person (laughs) Um, um, or, you know, blaming the the universe. Um, But and and that's essentially how the hero's journey became the format uh, within which the, the human journey would happen. But because I'm interested in group dynamics and in the group progression, mm-hmm. game design was always something that I'd been kind of playing with. And I had had some earlier work that I had done in, in game design. Games, games are essentially plays in which the actors don't talk back. <laughs> um, <laughs> in essence, um, because you can kind of make, you can design things that make, uh, make a very reliable, in a sense, result. Mm-hmm. And what the, what the human journey d- does is produce what's essentially a pretty reliable result in which by the end people experience a, a really a greater sense of their belonging to each other. They understand the meaning to some, you know, the, to some degree they gain insight on the meaning that, you know, undergirds their belonging to this particular group of people. And they have learned skills for what I would call kind of a sacred listening. Mm. They can continue to lose, to use with each other, hoping not lose with each other. So, so the game design, you know, promoted that sort of reliability, you know, given the presence and the training of the conductor to take that forward. But, you know, it also allows, not everybody is a therapy person. And so what I find is that the human journey really appeals to people who would never talk to a therapist or a chaplain. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless they were told, and which which is a very true thing, you know, they can participate in a, in an activity that will make them feel closer to their families. It doesn't have to be called, you know, anything deep. Uh, it can't. It can be called a game. Often, when you first explain it to families in a hospice setting, you don't even say it's a game. You just say it's an activity. That makes sense. Could you also could you add a little bit more about your process for developing the human journey? What informed the content development? What kind of research did you do? So it started with, um, as I say, with this narrative theory material. And then there was this intertwining process of interviewing folks in hospice from a variety of different perspectives about their work with patients. Some of them were chaplains, some of them were volunteers, some were social workers, um, largely the psychosocial folks, but to some degree some nurses as well, about what they saw and what they needed. So that was happening on the one hand. And on the other hand, I was testing the group process. Um, and that group process first happened with the people that I could strong arm into playing. Um, they were generally friends of mine uh, who, would, who didn't know each other necessarily, but who were willing to take part and gather in my living room and see, I could see how the group process moved. And I would, I would tweak after every play test, just like another game designer would do. Um, eventually I felt that the, that the group design was strong enough that I could bring it to an intact family system. So what I then did <laughs> was again, choose people who couldn't say no to me. Uh, and these were the, the families of, um, former students of mine. So I, I got the students from my former life as a professor to involve their families and I would go to their house and I, Thankfully, I got to meet their families at long last, which was really nice. And I got to see the process as it worked with people who have a backstory together or history together, um, which is quite different from how unrelated people take it on. And so once the, once there were a number of revisions and retests and playtests and more revisions 
at that level. Then I started working with intact family systems who had critical illness because I only wanted to add one piece at a time and not bring it to people who, you know, were in a critical place before it was really ready. And so that third phase is where it went with, with people with cancer and their caregivers. And that, that went on to the next, the next phase. Thank you. And uh, can you give me a sense of your current scale? Uh, where is the human journey being used and how extensively? You know, I'd say that at this point, I've trained about 60 conductors. Mm-hmm. Now able to say they're all over the world. Uh, they tend to be individuals who are in hospice or in bereavement work or counselors who want to do bereavement work, mm-hmm. not always doing it yet, but want to. And they they tend to come um, through a variety of means, either because I am talking with them individually through um, other ways we know each other, or they're coming through public setting through our website, things like that. Um, I do quite a lot of public trainings that allow individuals to come. But then I also have kind of a middle, middle up, middle out version of how people come, which is that someone who has a position, say, as the director of nurses or the director of chaplains may want to trade a group of their people, say, in a, as I say, in a hospital system. And uh, can you say a little more about how you work or communicate with hospices as you market the human journey or, or kind of spread the word? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one thing is to, to talk with them about how they feel about the psychospiritual care that their patients get. And, you know, at this point, too, there's a lot more concern about how the psychospiritual needs of the staff are playing out. In, in hospice as well. So that becomes a conversation point too. And so a lot of it, you know, it starts very in a very open-ended way to see where they are. What what seems to be very powerful is contexts in which the hospices are ready to have staff and volunteers train together and interact on a um they have confidence that they have volunteers who can be very successful doing it. And they're willing to train both professionals and volunteers, many of whom are retired professionals. I, I, you know, I've been exploring a lot the um, volunteer culture of Canada, for one thing, where it, it strikes me that there's some very interesting things happening in volunteerism in hospice that are instructive. Um, and I, I've trained one hospice in, uh, in Canada where volunteers took great responsibility for the well-being of uh, folks and, and did very meaningful uh, facilitative work. And uh, hospices, of course, provide bereavement care for 13 months, uh, at least following following a, a family member's death. And they often open up those services to the entire community rather than just the, the families of their patients. Uh, but do you think that bereavement care, at least in some form, should begin before the patient actually passes away? I, I do. I mean, you know, in part because of my perspective um, in, in approaching the human journey from the perspective of anticipatory grief, mm-hmm. but, but also based on what I've seen in hospice cultures that, you know, in part because folks are so stretched or stretched so thinly in their work, um, there's a bit of a siloization that can sometimes occur mm-hmm. where you have a social work team that, that is instructed to work um kind of siphoned off to work with the family prior to death. And then the family then moves along 
your listeners will forgive me for saying the assembly line um, to the bereavement team. And in a way, it's always struck me as a bit sad that there hasn't been the opportunity to have the bereavement team get to know the family better prior to the loss. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a big opportunity there. Um, for the care of the family, for the, for the potential mitigation of the quality of grief that people suffer. Um, and I think that that area really needs to be researched. Excellent. Well, Sarah, thank, again, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great discussion. You're doing some really interesting work. And, uh, yeah, I hope we're able to uh, connect again in the future as, as the human journey develops further but uh yeah thank you very much for joining us i appreciate it and i'd like to thank everyone who tunes in and listens to the podcast as well